Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And you know, one thing I haven't really covered in this show is just a rundown on common acronyms and initialisms in the world of tech and what those things actually mean. Sometimes you run into these things and they can throw you for a loop. So today and in the next few episodes, we're doing a sort of glossary of tech-related terms you might encounter and what those actually mean. Not really terms, but again, those initialisms and acronyms. I will spend a little bit of time on each of these because there's a lot to get through. So expect to hear a bit of context, not just a definition. If you want a definition, you could pull up lists of acronyms and initialisms and just see that. Now, before I jump into this, I do want to mention that this is by no means an exhaustive list of acronyms in tech. If I did that, it would pretty much (laughs) completely take over this podcast for the next like four weeks. Instead, I've selected a bunch of acronyms and initialisms that I think are important to know, but I'm leaving out a ton of them, and I wouldn't blame anyone for saying I was being a bit arbitrary with my approach to selection. It turns out the tech world absolutely loves acronyms and initialisms, and some of them take longer to say than the full names, because, I mean, why not? Also, just for the purposes of organization, I'm going to go alphabetically through the list here because I needed to organize this in some way, and that seemed to make the most sense to me. In addition, with some of these, I have actually grouped related terms together. For example, if I just go strictly alphabetically, I would hit DRAM before RAM, which means things would get a little weird. So instead, DRAM is going to be part of a larger treatment on RAM in general. So if you feel like I've skipped over something, and I definitely have skipped over some things, just wait for all of these episodes to come out, just in case that thing shows up in a group entry, and maybe by that time you will have forgotten all about it, and I won't have to get angry messages. So let's get to it. And our first one isn't actually starting with a letter at all. It starts with the numeral 2. So it's 2FA. This one means two-factor authentication, which I'm guessing most of you out there have encountered at some point. This is a means of authenticating a user, you know, saying, yes, this user is who they claim to be, and they do it through Well, two factors. Those factors should belong to two different categories of things. There are three categories total. There's knowledge, so that would be stuff like a password. It's something that the user knows. There's stuff what is you. By that I mean like biometrics, like a retinal scan or a fingerprint scan or, you know, a vocal scan, that kind of thing. And then there's stuff what you own, like your cell phone or a physical token or something like that. So with two-factor authentication, you have to provide two out of the three categories in order to get access to whatever system it is you're trying to access. This could be a building. It could be a computer. It could be a specific piece of software. A pretty common version of this 
is a password and a one-time use access code that the system then sends to your registered smartphone. So the idea here, of course, is that if someone were to get hold of your password, like let's say you wrote it on a post-it note or something, <clears throat> I've seen it happen, well, that person would still need to have your phone in order to access that account once they were prompted by the system. So when implemented properly, two-factor authentication is a big boost in security. On a related note, you also have MFA, which stands for multi-factor authentication. That includes 2FA, but could extend beyond 2FA for certain systems. And also, I know it can feel like a huge hassle to log into systems that require multi-factor authentication, but it really is a more secure method than using passwords alone, for example, particularly in a world where data breaches and poor security habits can lead to someone gaining unauthorized access to a computer or network. Next, we have ANSI, A-N-S-I, stands for American National Standards Institute. So if you're like me, you probably haven't traditionally spent a whole lot of time thinking about standards and where those standards come from. Now, standards are incredibly useful. They're what makes it possible for you to use stuff from totally different sources, like manufacturers, for example, or, or just companies in general, and have those things still work together. Uh, imagine a world without standards. It'd be kind of like me in college. It, it would just be a total mess. You would be locked into ecosystems even more than you already are. Like, if every PC manufacturer went totally proprietary with their hardware, their firmware, and their software, you would be locked into that system. You would never be able to use anything from anywhere else. On a hardware-related level, like not even computer hardware, just literal, like hardware store hardware, imagine that you had proprietary screws from one company and proprietary screwdrivers from a different company, and they're not at all compatible, and that you would have to have everything from the same manufacturer for it to work together. It would be a nightmare, and it would make things really difficult whenever you need to make repairs or add on to anything. So standards can apply to stuff like equipment or even processes and personnel. So standards can be far beyond just the physical stuff that we encounter or the types of, of uh, software that we use. And ANSI, the organization that verifies standards, that dates back to 1918. It doesn't actually establish standards itself. It's not like this organization gets together and says, we have this stone tablet that says all uh, Phillips head screwdrivers have to be this particular shape. It's not like that. Instead, it's an accreditation organization that evaluates and approves standards that have been developed by other entities. That process involves a lot of collaboration. So ANSI brings together all the various parties that are affected by the adoption of those standards so that they can hash it out. Ultimately, this leads to a more orderly marketplace. All that being said, there are still lots of companies that develop proprietary technologies and processes, but the vast majority of the stuff we depend upon has an underlying uniformity thanks to standards. Next, API and SDK. This is one of those where I've combined two different things. So API stands for Application Programming Interface. 
SDK stands for Software Development Kit. These two terms are frequently used together, but they are not interchangeable. An API is kind of like a software liaison. So it's a set of rules and tools that allow different pieces of software to communicate with each other. It helps developers create application software that can interoperate with some other piece of software or platform. So for example, Facebook has an API that lets developers create apps that can tap into basic Facebook functionality. NSDK, on the other hand, is a more robust set of tools for the purposes of developing software. And SDK often has an API as part of the kit. So you can think of an API as a subset of the kind of tools that you find in an SDK. So an operating system might have an SDK, and that would allow developers to create software that could then run on top of that operating system, uh, which by the way, we often abbreviate to OS. So that's another bonus. OS stands for operating system. Next, AR. AR stands for augmented reality. This applies to technologies that use some form of computer-generated information to enhance our real-world experience in some way. Frequently, we think of this as a visual overlay of the world around us. So, for example... Google Glass, which had a transparent prism uh, that was sort of located in a way that was not directly in your view if you were looking straight ahead, but rather up just a little bit. So you'd glance up a bit and you could look at this prism. That was actually a screen that could display digital information. So it could give you, for example, step-by-step -step directions as you navigated around an environment. You would just glance up and see that, you know, in 100 feet, you would need to make a left turn. Other versions of AR use a camera to pick up on an image and then display uh, where you would be able to see some sort of effect related to that image. So one example of this is like an app where you would hold it up your phone, you know, hold up your phone so that the camera is looking at, say, a movie poster. And then on your screen, that movie poster suddenly becomes animated. And it's it's, you know, a pretty interesting effect. But you could have AR implementations that don't use visual elements at all. It just has to be a computer-generated sensory experience that enhances or augments what's going on in the world around you. AR is a type of mixed reality, which you can think of as existing on a spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, you have an experience that is heavily dependent upon real reality, and the computational elements are extremely light touch. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have experiences that are heavily dependent on a computer-generated reality. In fact, you could have some where the computer-generated reality is replacing almost everything of your real experience. Arguably, augmented reality started off as an entertainment experience pioneered by a guy named Morton Heilig, Back in the late 1950s, he invented a machine called the Sensorama. The idea being that you would sit down in one of these machines. It's kind of like a, a almost like a console type thing you would sit at and you would watch um, some form of movie or short film. And that would be augmented with other sensations like the device would emit certain smells. Like, let's say that you're looking at a video or a film rather of uh, orange groves and suddenly you can smell oranges 
And you could even get haptic sensations. So, so tactile feedback, there'd be little vibrating motors and stuff. And that was a, a kind of the birth of augmented reality. As for the term itself, Thomas P. Cottle gets the credit for coining that term in 1990, back when he was working at Boeing. Next up, we've got ARPA slash DARPA. So ARPA, A-R-P-A, stands for Advanced Research Projects Agency. And DARPA, which is the same organization, it's just a new name, that stands for Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. That's the current name for the organization. This is the R&D arm of the United States Department of Defense. Now, this agency isn't actually a think tank filled with, like, labs and scientists playing with beakers and robots and aliens and stuff. Instead, it's an organization that's focused primarily on providing funding to other research organizations that are actually developing technologies that could potentially be useful in the cause of national defense. DARPA has played a huge role in the evolution of technologies like computer networks, autonomous cars, drone technology, and much more. ARPANET, uh, a predecessor of the internet, came out of an ARPA initiative, as the name implies. Many of the autonomous car projects in various companies can actually trace their history back to participants who were competing in one of the DARPA grand challenges of driverless vehicles. These challenges lay out really ambitious goals, and then various teams strive to achieve those while competing against other teams, and they're all going for a cash prize and really bragging rights for winning the whole thing. Now, it's important to remember that the chief role of DARPA is ultimately to fund projects that could potentially be used in a defense or military context. And the organization has been connected to some rather unsavory projects in the past, such as the use of herbicides in warfare, most notably Agent Orange, which is a highly toxic and carcinogenic compound that was used by the United States during the Vietnam War. Then we have ASCII, or A-S-C-I-I. It stands for American Standard Code for Information Interexchange. It's a standard for how an 8-bit system represents numbers, letters, and certain symbols. So a bit is a binary digit, and it can have a value of 0 or 1. So each bit has two potential values, right? A bit can be either a 0 or a 1. If you have two bits then you've got four potential values, which would be 00, 01, 10, or 11. When you get up to 8 bits, you have 256 potential values. The American Standards Association's X3 division created ASCII as a standard for representing various characters using binary with these 8 bits, or a byte if you prefer. A byte is 8 bits. The standard could then be used in bit-based computer systems, which allowed for electronic communication of these characters. So we have to remember that computers don't process language the same way we do. They typically process language in form of machine code. Machine code, more often than not, means binary. That's something that we humans can't really handle very well. Uh, machines can handle it very, very quickly. So the ASCII was a way of translating binary into characters and vice versa. 
very important when you're using computers to communicate uh, between two different people. BASIC. All right, BASIC, believe it or not, is an acronym. It's not just a word. Uh, BASIC stands for Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code. It's a type of high-level programming language, and the developers of BASIC intended it to be a relatively easy-to-use programming language that computer science students could pick up pretty quickly. So what does high-level mean in this case? Well, machines, like I said, process information in machine code, and the most famous of this is binary. Machines can process binary code very, very quickly, but it's incredibly hard for humans to do the same. It's easy for me to say the letter H, for example, but if I have to look up the ASCII code for the letter H, that would be 01101000. That's if I wanted to do a lowercase h. An uppercase h is a totally different code. So that would very quickly become impossible for me to use this this binary language to make any kind of meaningful set of instructions like a program to run on a computer. So to make it easier for humans to program and work with computers, various very smart people have created programming languages. Now, some programming languages we refer to as being low-level languages. That means they are fairly close to machine code, and thus they're pretty hard for humans to work with. But other languages are more of an abstraction, and they are high-level. So they are easy, or at least easier, for humans to work with as they type out instructions to create a program. So a compiler then takes that language and translates it into machine code for the computer to process. BASIC is one of the older modern computer languages and one that goofuses like yours truly played around with when personal computers first became a thing. You can still program in BASIC, though there are far more sophisticated programming languages out there, of course. Next is BIOS, which stands for Basic Input Output System. So if you look at a computer and you get a bit abstract, you realize there are some proverbial layers going on with your basic computer or computational device. You've got your actual circuitry, right? You've got the actual hardware through which information ultimately must be processed. These are the physical pathways that electricity can flow through. These are the transistors and the wires and processors and all that kind of stuff. But you've also got software. These are the programs that you run to create various outputs. Maybe it's a video game. Maybe it's a word processor. Maybe it's a web browser. These are chunks of code that respond to your input and create an output based on that. But there's got to be a layer that allows for software to interact with hardware. And that's kind of what BIOS is doing. It's a type of firmware, which is a low-level software that interacts with the hardware level. BIOS initiates the boot-up process, among other things. And the BIOS sets the boot priority, which is essentially a list that dictates the order in which processes may initiate upon a machine booting up. All right, so far we have covered only the A's and the B's, plus a number with 2FA. When we come back, we'll see what's next. Uh, it's, um, it's C, because that was a pun. I'm so sorry. We'll be right back. We're going to start off the C's with CAD, C-A-D. 
it's not just a, a scoundrel. It actually stands for computer-aided design. And as the name implies, this refers to the practice of using computers or computerized workstations to assist in the design of something. It could be in the design of electronics or architecture or mechanical systems or animation. I first learned about CAD approaches from my friend Michael in high school. He took a course in drafting, and that's where he first worked with CAD applications. Me? No, I never got into that, because uh, ain't no computer that's been made that can aid me in the design enough to make something I make look good or be functional. Today, CAD is used in tons of industries, from aerospace to prosthetics to computer animation. Designers may work in a 2D format, that's two-dimensional, uh, or they might use 3D models. It all depends on the specific implementation, you know, what they're using it for, and the program. Next is CAT, or C-A-T. In this case, I'm talking about CAT as in category, which we use to describe certain types of network cables, like Ethernet cables. These are a subset of twisted pair cables. So let's just walk through that really quickly. If you're familiar with electromagnetism, you know that a current running through a conductor generates a magnetic field. And you know that a fluctuating magnetic field will induce a current to flow through a nearby conductor. We can do a lot of cool stuff with that because of that basic law of physics, but it also means we have to take interference into account when we build out electronics. If you had two unshielded conductors that were near each other, the current flowing through conductor number one would interfere with conductor number two. So one thing you can do to limit this is you can insulate the conductors. You can use a non-conductive material to coat those. But another thing you can do is you can twist a pair of conductors together. That actually reduces the interference between the two. Alexander Graham Bell discovered this and used it when building out devices like the early telephone. And in fact, telephone wires use this particular approach. Let's skip ahead to the 1990s. After the development of level one cables, which are used for telephone wires, and level two, which was used in early computer terminal systems, particularly at, at places like IBM, twisted pair cables came in a type called category three, or just cat three cables, and then went from there. Cat three cables allowed for a bandwidth of 16 megahertz of frequencies for the purposes of data transmission. These days, most ethernet cables are actually cat five E cables, which can transmit data at up to gigabit speeds. There are other category cables out there, some of which have yet to be ratified by standards organizations. That also means that because they haven't been ratified, there aren't that many equipment manufacturers that have created, you know, actual devices that accept those kinds of cables because it could be a very expensive mistake to build out stuff that is accepting a non-standardized input. If standards organizations never ratify specific implementations and declare them as standard, you could end up having devices that have useless ports, and that's just uh, an expense that you didn't need to, to have. Next, we have CMOS, or C-M-O-S. This stands for Complementary Metal Oxide Semiconductor, which is a type of semiconductor that says nice things about your outfit. 
Wait, no, I'm sorry. Wait, I'm being told that's the wrong kind of complimentary. With regard to computer chips, CMOS refers to a chip that stores information about the hardware settings of the device. So BIOS references CMOS when going through the booting process. So CMOS and BIOS work together to bring a computational device online and in proper working order upon booting up. The memory on CMOS is dynamic and Technically, it's temporary or volatile, in other words. And if CMOS were to ever go unpowered, like if the chip were to be ever cut off from power, the memory on that chip would just wipe out. It would be blank. It would be erased, essentially. But BIOS needs the instructions from CMOS to boot properly, right? BIOS depends on CMOS to essentially instruct the BIOS what order to do stuff in. So the CMOS chip relies on a small battery, to stay powered up, even when the computer itself is turned off or if you lost power or whatever. These batteries can last a really long time. 10 years isn't unusual. Uh, it's typically at least as long as the life cycle for the motherboard of your computer. Most of the time, you would actually be ready to replace the whole device before you would ever need to replace the CMOS battery, although there are cases where people have had to do that. Now, when you boot up a computer, you actually do have a tool that allows you the option to either boot into BIOS or CMOS. Booting into CMOS gives you the chance to change CMOS settings, which in turn will affect how BIOS handles the booting process in the future. CMOS, by the way, is a PC term, as in personal computer, not politically correct. In Apple Mac computers, the equivalent is PRAM, or PRAM, that stands for Parameter RAM, but we're going to talk about RAM in a later episode. Alright, I should also add that there is another CMOS in tech, and that's the type of active pixel sensor found in some digital cameras. CMOS is just one type of these kinds of sensors, and to go into how those sensors work would require a pretty thorough explanation and its full episode on its own, so I'm going to leave that for the time being. Just understand that there's that version too. It still stands for the same thing, by the way. It's still complementary metal oxide semiconductor, but it has a different purpose. Moving on, CMS. Now, with regard to tech, CMS means Content Management System. Typically, this is a framework within which users can post, edit, and delete content, uh, such as web content. Uh, a CMS typically has a structure that allows for a uniform approach to adding content to a pre-existing system, like, say, a website. That way, even someone who is new to that environment can still post stuff that's in line with the standards and protocols of the site. So let's take an actual example and use my old employer, HowStuffWorks.com. That site has a CMS that allows people to create content in article format, including the basics in how images show up on screen, where captions should appear, and in what font, and all that kind of stuff. It's sort of like a way to create and manage templates and then post content within that template. And back when I worked at HowStuffWorks, I didn't have to use the CMS very much myself. I would write my articles, and then a publisher would take the finished and edited product and then put it into CMS for publication. Our CMS also allowed publishers to set a time for that publication so that a finished piece of copy could go live on the site at a specific designated time. So there was a content delivery application or CDA that would take the formatted content and push it to go live. 
A good CMS will have lots of features that make life easier for publishers like audit logs to keep track of changes that are made to content or a small server footprint so that the CMS isn't taking too much space on a network. Really good ones will have a very intuitive UI that stands for user interface. So a user interface is exactly what it sounds like. It's the way in which a user interacts with a technology. So that's another little bonus initialism for you right there. Next is COPPA, C-O-P-P-A. I covered this in a recent episode of Tech Stuff, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but it stands for Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. The U.S. Congress passed this act into law in 1998. COPPA requires online sites and services that target users who are under the age of 13 to comply with certain rules or else face civil lawsuits from entities like the Federal Trade Commission, or FTC. Those rules state that a site or service has to get the express permission from a parent or guardian of a child before they can collect that child's information. Further, the site or service cannot collect any and all information about the kid. It can't just like build out a comprehensive database of all data points about that child. They are only supposed to collect the information needed to provide whatever service it is that the entity is providing. So for example, if it's a web-based game, it can't be asking for all the information about the kid's address and parents' names and all that kind of stuff because it's not necessary in order to just play the game. Also, these entities are supposed to delete that information once the info is no longer needed to provide that service. This is tied pretty closely to the rules that the advertising industry set for itself when it comes to marketing toward children. In 2020, COPPA made the news uh, within YouTube circles because the platform initiated some pretty big changes that had widespread effects on content creators. The short version is that YouTube requires creators to designate whether their channels or on a more granular level, their individual videos are targeting kids specifically. And if so, then many of the typical features that we've come to expect on YouTube, you know, stuff like comments, uh, notifications, merchandise links, that kind of stuff, all of that gets turned off because of those strict rules about how sites and services can collect information about kids or how they can advertise to kids. So in addition, that means personalized ads are turned off automatically for any of those videos or in the case of channels that are directed towards kids for the entire channel. That affects monetization. It means that you get a lower level for uh, revenue than you would with personalized ads. And that means that creators will make less money through those means. And for a lot of creators, these changes raised questions about whether or not their channel, which might be family friendly, might be tagged as being explicitly targeting kids. They could say, well, no, I don't target kids. I mean, I, I don't make content that's inappropriate for children, but I'm not specifically targeting children as my audience. And so there were a lot of questions about how do these different creators, you know, how do they fit within this rule set? So far, it doesn't seem as though these changes have turned YouTube upside down or anything, but it is an ongoing dialogue between creators and the platform itself. Next, we have CPA, CPC, CPL, and CPM. So speaking of monetization, that's what all these initialisms kind of relate to. The CP in each of these stands for cost per. 
So you've got cost per action for CPA, cost per click for CPC, cost per lead for CPL, and cost per mille for CPM. So all of this ties to advertising and how ad deals are struck between content providers or content platforms and the advertisers. So cost per action covers an amount paid per specific action that's taken by users. That action could be clicking on an ad, or it could be submitting an online form, or it might go so far as actually making a purchase. So the agreement here states that the advertiser will pay the content platform a specific fee every time some user takes this very particular action related to whatever the ad is. Cost per click is really a subset of cost per action. It specifically refers to the moment when someone clicks on an ad. So this isn't just whether or not someone saw an ad. It's not enough for it to just be an impression, in other words. This is if a person saw the ad and then acted by clicking through to see what the ad links to. So Google ads in search results typically fall into this category. If you ever do a Google search and then you click on one of the ad results, which are typically at the very top of the list, that's likely counting toward a cost per click revenue model. It doesn't affect you directly. It's just how the money is changing hands at that, that advertiser platform level. Then you have cost per lead or CPL. That's when you're usually talking about a scenario in which someone is explicitly signing up for an offer. So if the ad leads to someone signing up to get a newsletter or something like that, that might be a cost per lead. And like the previous examples, the advertiser will pay out a certain amount of money for every user that actually follows through and generates a lead. And yeah, leads in this case essentially mean potential sales, as they typically represent someone who is interested in a specific product or service. And then finally, you've got cost per mille. Mille is the old Roman word for thousand, and this is the impression model. So essentially, CPM establishes a certain amount of money that an advertiser will pay per 1,000 impressions or views. So if you've got a website and your website displays ads that are all based on impressions, the more people who come to visit your site, the more money you'll make once you have those 1,000 impression blocks start to fill up. In addition, more popular sites can actually require a higher CPM. So that means that advertisers will actually pay more per 1,000 impressions. These agreements typically have a set time limit on them. So for example, you might have an ad deal that lasts for three months. And at the end of the three months, you get paid according to whatever your CPM rate is and how many people actually viewed that ad within the three-month period. CPM approaches have led to some of the types of web pages that I personally dislike, such as the slideshow approach for listicles where every item on a list is its own web page. That's done because moving from one slide to another counts as a page refresh, which means you get another impression. So one way web pages boost impression counts is by using stuff like slideshows, galleries, and quizzes in order to get those page views to go up. Also, a website that can show that it has a higher page view rate can demand a higher CPM rate, so it all kind of feeds back on itself. We've got a few more C's to go through, but I need to take 
a really quick break. Okay, we're up to a big one, CPU. This one is a basic term that maybe all of you know, but just in case, it stands for Central Processing Unit. This is the logic center for a computational device. It's the chip that performs basic operations on data to generate results. So you could have a program that's sending instructions and data to the CPU. Those instructions might be as simple as add these two numbers together. And then the CPU executes those instructions on the data and then sends the output to wherever it's supposed to go based on those instructions. CPUs handle general instructions, and so they have to be pretty good at pretty much everything. Or at least they have to be passable at everything for a general purpose computer. They typically have an arithmetic logic unit, or ALU, in them, which, as the name suggests, is in charge of executing arithmetic operations on data. Uh, ALU chips can exist on their own. They don't have to be full CPUs, and in fact, in some more... Um, basic electronics, you might just have an ALU. The CPU typically also has a control unit that's in charge of coordinating things within the CPU, such as fetching data from memory and then dictating the order of operations that the CPU is supposed to follow. CPUs operate at a specific rate of operations called the clock rate or clock speed. You can think of this as how many basic instructions the CPU is able to execute in a second. We measure this in hertz or cycles per second. So a CPU that operates on the megahertz scale is executing basic instructions at a rate of millions per second. Though these days that would be slow. Your basic CPUs today operate on the gigahertz scale. So we're talking billions of basic instructions every second. Some operations require more than one step in instructions. And the faster the clock rate, the faster the CPUs can execute instructions, generally speaking. The practice of overclocking refers to boosting a CPU's clock rate beyond whatever the factory set limit for that CPU happens to be. It's kind of like removing any sort of limitation device from a car so that it can actually go faster than its rated top speed. On another note, while early CPUs used a single core architecture, it's pretty common these days for computers to have multi-core processors. You can sort of think of these as slightly smaller CPUs that all work together. Uh, for certain types of computational problems, the multi-core approach greatly speeds up processing by breaking those problems up into different components. This doesn't work for every computational problem, however, and so a multi-core processor may sometimes not match a single-core processor of a similar clock rate for a specific subset of computational problems. Getting into all of that would require a full episode of itself, so we'll leave it for now. Just know that most CPUs out there these days are multi-core processors, and for the vast majority of types of, of software that we typical users run, that's fine. It's perfectly cromulent, as the Simpsons would say. Next, we have CRT. So in the context of technology, I'm talking about cathode ray tubes. This refers to the old style of computer monitors and displays and even television sets. These devices are big, bulky displays. They aren't just wide and tall like flat panel displays. They have depth. 
So in our flat screen world, they look really clumsy and bulky. They're also incredibly heavy. Oh, and they also have very powerful capacitors inside them that can hold on to a latent electric charge. That makes them potentially very dangerous if you were to ever break one. So don't do that because you could get electrocuted or at least suffer a really serious shock. Anyway, the cathode ray tube refers to a component inside these displays that is in many ways similar to a light bulb. So you've got a tube inside of which is a filament that is suspended in a vacuum. So inside the tube is a vacuum. Electricity can flow through the filament, which then causes the filament to start to give off electrons. Frequently, we call this an electron gun because of how it gives off and then directs electrons to hit the backside of a fluorescent screen. The impact of the electrons on those fluorescent components causes those components to, you know, fluoresce or glow. And on the flip side, we see those as pixels of light on these types of displays. So these electron guns are consistently scanning across the backs of these screens and generating the images that we see, whether it's television or computer monitor or display or whatever. These days, CRTs are a rarity. You still find them with some legacy systems, and folks who have old working televisions may still be using them, though with some pretty big limitations. But for the most part, they have been replaced by other types of tech. Next, we have CSS. That's Cascading Style Sheets. This is a style sheet language, and that doesn't really help very much for most of us, I think. Uh, but for the web, it means that you can use CSS to create the formatting style for information that will be displayed on the web. And you can separate the format, that is, the way that things are displayed within a browser, and you can separate that from the content, as in the actual stuff that's being displayed. So in the old days, if you wanted to create a web page, you had to code everything in. You had to set whatever the background color for the page was going to be, the text color of the font, uh, the table formats, font styles and size, uh, layout styles, and more. And it was a lot of work. CSS allows developers to create what is sort of like a format template. Uh, any content that uses that CSS format will end up fitting that template once you publish it to the web. And you could port that content to a different CSS sheet, and it would end up looking totally different. The word cascading here is used to describe a sort of order of operations. Uh, you can think of it as an if-then kind of approach, such as if this web page is being viewed on a mobile device, then use this specific layout scheme. However, if the content is being viewed through a web browser on, say, a desktop computer, then use this other layout scheme that's optimized for that. Since different rules might apply depending upon the specific circumstances, the operations cascade in priority based on those circumstances. So it's really about removing a lot of the work that you would have to do if you were to do all of this by hand. CSS, by the way, is one of the foundational elements of the World Wide Web, and we'll talk about another one in a future episode. And spoiler alert, that one is HTML, but we've got a long way to go. We got a lot more letters in the alphabet before we get to H. Next, we have DAW, and this isn't just what I say when I see a cute puppy dog. However, it's also 
that. I also do say that. No, DAW stands for Digital Audio Workstation. So this is what audio editors and engineers use to work on digital audio files. A DAW can be a selection of physical equipment. So it can be like a big bank of controls, complete with lots of, you know, knobs and buttons and sliders. Or it can consist of software in which all of those physical controls are essentially virtualized. Or it could be a combination of the two. Podcasters use DAWs to record and edit their content. Most DAWs have tons of options to let you manipulate audio files in various ways. It might mean adding reverb to a selection, or it might mean changing the pitch of the audio, or the speed of the audio playback. And those are just tiny examples and some of the more overt features you'll find with DAWs. There's some that are incredibly subtle and you might not even pick up on them, but you know, producers who've been working in the field for years will immediately recognize them. The one DAW that most of our producers tend to use, not all of them, but most of them, is called Audition from Adobe. Uh, some producers wouldn't even call Audition a DAW simply because it lacks support that, say, musicians would rely upon, such as native support for MIDI integrations. Uh, MIDI, or M-I-D-I, is another initialism that we will cover in a future episode. Next, we have DLC. This stands for downloadable content, and typically this refers to additional content that embellishes an existing piece of software, most notably in video games, but not exclusively. DLC is a way for publishers to create and sell expansions to existing pieces of software, but it doesn't require developers to go in and create an all-new version of the stuff, right? They can rely heavily on existing assets to build out these additional features. So in the video game world, you'll frequently see DLC used to flesh out a fictional world or create new storylines or levels or missions for the player to follow. But sometimes DLC might include purely cosmetic changes, or they'll include content that's, you know, tangential to the gameplay. It doesn't actually represent more gameplay, but just kind of augments what's already been there. Just like games in general, DLC can be done really well, or it can be done poorly. For most gamers, I would say good DLC is typically seen as something that's priced appropriately. Typically, you're talking about something that's priced below the price for a full game and provides a satisfying experience on top of whatever the main game is. Bad DLC might be viewed as being too expensive or just containing superfluous content that doesn't really add anything. Uh, DLC can extend the life cycle of a game title. Some games can remain relevant years after their initial release because of DLC. And some games, like the Hitman games, the most recent ones, for example, can create entire revenue models based around DLC that just consistently adds new content to an older game. Well, I think that's a good place for us to leave off. We've got a lot more to cover. Obviously, we're just now in D's and we've still got a few D's to go. Beyond that, we have the rest of the alphabet. But I think that this is a really useful approach to kind of understanding some terms that you're going to encounter as you navigate the world of tech, and not all of them are intuitive. And a lot of them can actually lead to people thinking that the initials stand for totally different stuff. And it can be very confusing, so I find that this sort of approach is good to build a, an understanding and a contextualization around tech. 
And uh, I always find that to be particularly useful. So we will continue this in Wednesday's episode and probably beyond that, because unless I just get extremely efficient with my descriptions, we'll have a lot more to go beyond that. But I, I think that this is a really useful path to go down. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's elaboration on any of these terms or something just interesting in the tech world, reach out to me. The best place to do that is on Twitter. The handle we use is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 